So, you're perfectly okay believing that tiny people on television can predict the weather. But you crinkle with consternation at the mere suggestion that you could make it snow. One of those things that is science. Okay, do you have a fantasy? You're talking about it like it's apples and oranges. It's not apples and oranges, okay? It's reality and fantasy. Oh, so that's how the world works. It's either real or it's fantasy. Yeah, that's how the world works. Yes, if the man who hasn't seen it. At best, you suffer from a failure of imagination. We're gonna have to fix that. Welcome to Storm of Spoilers, off-season tour. You stumbled upon an eight-episode miniseries dedicated to the stars TV show American Gods. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Gail Folsom. Each week, we, two book readers and amateur Neil Gaiman experts, will unpack the latest episode of American Gods. Despite the name of this podcast, we will not be spoiling anything in this episode beyond season one, episode three, Head Full of Snow, directed by David Slade, written by Brian Fuller, Michael Green... And always credited to Neil Gaiman. But before we dive into the episode, Gail, do we have any listener feedback that we wanted to address? So uh, DJ writes in, I was always under the impression that Old Country Odin and American Odin are two completely different gods in this universe, that each of the old gods in America were just the lesser 2.0 version. Am I wrong? And DJ's right. I mean, I think we. Talk, uh-huh. I feel like we talked about this last week, but it might have been in the deep in the spoiler section, so it's yeah. possible that DJ didn't hear it. We don't need to spoil anything. I think to answer. Well, if you watch, yeah, if you watch episode three, then I think um, Ian McShane's character sort of answers that question in like a little tirade about Jesus. So, oh, sure. Like, That's true. There's yeah. There's apparently there are like multiple versions of all of these gods, depending on like who believes in them and how they believe in them and how they sort of picture them being. So yeah, I think DJ is absolutely right. Um, and, and yes, that is how Gaiman writes the book. And, and that is, uh, that is how I think we are supposed to understand these incarnations. And this is something that you're very good at bringing up because you will, you will consistently mention, uh, you know, Mr. One Day's various con jobs, of which we will see one in this episode, um, and how that seems to you beneath the dignity of Odin, um, but uh, of old world Odin, but, but not American Odin. So, right. Correct. Next. Okay. Uh, Brian K. from Rockland, New York writes in, Joanna and Gail, I just finished listening to episode two and the bonus footage at the end was terrific. I've been listening to Joanna's work for a while and Gail is a wonderful addition to this podcast. Thank you. I'm curious to your reference to Jesus Christ with respect to Shadow's Wound. I'm about one third through the new edition of the book with Gaiman's preferred text, so I'm not sure if it's a spoiler for things to come. From what's on screen and my my knowledge of Norse mythology, it seems more reasonable that Shadow's experience more closely parallels Odin. Odin, in order to be given knowledge of the runes, was hanged from the world tree for nine days and was pierced in the side by his own spear. Thanks for doing this podcast. Brian, you are absolutely correct that um, that is something that happened to Odin. In fact, to be more precise, Odin hanged himself from the world tree. 
and pierced his side with his own spear. Um, and it, interestingly enough, in the moment that Joanna sort of like tongue in cheek brought that up, um, there are really two different ways that you could go with your assumption of who she was talking about. And I sort of went with the broader cultural assumption of, you know, of gods who were killed on trees and pierced by spears. This one's probably better known. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it does, in fact, make a lot more sense for Shadow to have been killed Odin style um, on a tree. Um and I actually will go even further to say that the you know the the god sacrificing to God you know being the only greatest and best sacrifice like the ultimate sacrifice better than any human could devise um, is a is a bigger theme in in a lot of religions uh, and yeah you could draw a lot of parallels to a lot of religions but yes it does make more sense um, for it to be an Odin thing just oh. sort of interesting that it also happens to be a jesus thing well you know i don't i don't know that it also happens to be necessarily like i don't want to offend anyone um we all know that i'm a heathen and (laughs) gail happens to not be but um you know i know you know this when it comes to like uh, fairy tales where we see the same Mm -hmm. story told over and over again by different cultures and so i don't think it's a coincidence at all that odin sort of sacrifices himself on a tree and jesus to a certain extent sacrifices himself depending on your point of view on the cross and they get wounds in similar places like that to me doesn't seem like a crazy random happenstance but rather two different cultures telling a similar story as and it's also all the time you know yeah it's it's also i think worth noting that um both Christianity and Norse, mytho- Norse mythology, and frankly, uh, you know, fairy tales and a lot of mythologies run the same route where they are very much influenced by the cultures that they either assimilate or are assimilated by. So, you know, there's the Christianization of fairy tales. And I don't know, like, I don't know how much, for example, Brothers Grimm had to do with that or how much just the retelling of basically pagan stories down through the, you know, Christian influences of, of later times, those stories had, had Christian influences that didn't exist in the original pagan versions. Like a good example would be, um, the, uh, Psyche and Eros story, which is then echoed in later iterations in Western fairy tales. But anyway, yeah, I, I think that they, it's sort of, it doesn't, um, benefit anyone <laughs> aside from the sort of like interesting ph- philosophical discussion to try and figure out like it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. These mythologies are important to people and they echo certain um, sentiments that come from different areas in the world. And even, you know, I would say in general humanity, the idea of God sacrificing to God and sacrifice in general is a theme you're going to see a lot of. <laughs> You know, something I'm always surprised to find out when I do these podcasts is like how how very smart people sometimes like to listen to me babble about TV shows. So sometimes we have have professors listening. Believe it or not, it's true. So (laughs) if you are a professor of, I don't know, mythology, spirituality, religious studies, uh, symbology, something like that, and you have thoughts about the Jesus wound and the Odin wound and how they're related, please do email us at stormospoilers at gmail.com. We love all these emails you're sending us. Uh, Some of them are a little too long to read on air, but we definitely love getting them. I think we got Gail one that that was (laughs) lovely, but a little long also this week. 
Yeah, there was a, just a really delightful email to read that came from, um, I'm so sorry for butchering this name, but uh, Ali Luba Kavinas from Noblesville, Illinois, uh, Indiana, um, about her grandmother, uh, or her, sorry, her great grandmother reading Coffee Grounds. And it was just lovely to read. So, like, if you also, I've, and I, I thought it was really delightful, actually, in the tradition of American Gods, actually, um, telling this story that was like this little vignette that came out of, you know, us babbling on air. So, <laughs> thank you so much for sending that, Ali. We really enjoyed reading it. Yeah, she, you know, she said her great grandmother came over to America with her two small daughters in the very last ship out of Europe before World War II. And she was following a husband who abandoned her and started a new life with a woman <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. And like this, yeah, it just, it reads like a coming to it totally could have written it. It was beautiful. So thank you so much for that email. Sorry, listeners, you don't get to enjoy it. But you have anecdotes about your great great parents doing something uh, that we see in American Gods. Hopefully, probably not something we saw in this episode, then uh, please do email us about it. Uh, what's, our, what's our last listener feedback, Gail? Oh, um, we had a. <laughs> It's good. Really? It helps us learn and grow. It really does. We had a really um, humbling email, or sorry, tweet from uh, Philip Ben uh, Schmuel. Schmuel? Schmuel. Schmuel mm-hmm. um, at Philip DBS, who says, Technic Boy never says there are 206 children. He says the children will break all 206 bones in Shadow's body. Reread it. Uh, this is true. <laughs> In my defense, I will say that the way that it is worded, it I think is an easy mistake to make. Okay, here's I'm like I'm letting Gail entirely off the hook here, and myself because I mean I didn't double check this, but like the way he I'm gonna paraphrase. I don't have the text right in front of me, but basically the text reads like this: Technical boy says, um. You know, don't piss me off or my children will break break all the bones in your body. There are 206 of them. That's all he says. So if you don't know (laughs) that there are 266 bones in the body, you're like, oh, the 206 of them refers to... Basically, it's an ambiguous (laughs) modifier is what I'm saying. Ambiguous modifier (laughs) is the culprit. I will say, however, like uh, to the credit of those who guessed that it had to do with bones in the body... You are correct. Yeah, you nailed it, guys. Um, but that was fun. Uh, us chasing uh, the wrong... I don't know. I thought it was kind of fun. The series so, that came out of it were kind of fun, too. They were like their own mythology. That's what I mean. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, we had fun chasing our tails on that one. So I hope you guys don't feel misled. But uh, thank you um, to Philip for putting us right. Okay. So we're going to dive now into Season 1, Episode 3, Head Full of Snow. We're going to kick off with, I think... My second favorite introduction of a god after that Mr. Nancy performance that we enjoyed last week, uh, where we meet Anubis, Anubis, Mm. the Egyptian lord of the dead, who comes to take a woman to the afterlife who has fallen. Uh, Anubis is also the lord of embalming, as we know, the Egyptians love their embalming. So I don't think (laughs) it's a mistake that this woman fell while reaching for a jar. That's my guess. Um, (laughs) It's like a little nod to that. This isn't, I mean, Anubis is a character in the book. He's his alter ego is Mr. Jackal, but uh, this vignette is not. What did you think of the introduction of Anubis? Uh, I thought, I thought it was so sweet. And I, it's um, because it was not in the book. I was 
initially like, wow, God, one of those hairless cats again. <laughs> cats are so creepy. Yeah. And then, and then when Anubis showed up, I was like, oh. Um, but I, I, I loved that whole sequence. I thought it was so tender and sweet. And it, I mean, I'm a little bit biased because as a strange child, um, a strange friendless child in the fourth grade, <laughs> I was definitely getting all the books on uh, Egyptian gods and embalming practices that I could out of my local library and was like weirdly familiar with the process and all the gods. And um, I just, I loved that. Um, I loved what he, what Anubis said to her. You know, she says, this is a Muslim house. So why is the Egyptian God of the dead? Why is Anubis coming to take me away? And she, and he tells her, because, you know, once upon a time, you heard these stories and you believed in it. Basically, I'm, I'm coming for you as a courtesy, um, as a as an homage to your belief, because your, you know, your, your childish faith called me. And she's just so she's so grateful for this and so overwhelmed because she's carried this with her. She and she says, I remember. I thought it was so beautiful. It was just the kind of thing that like the child in me responds to. And then when she says to him, when they, when they get to the top of the pyramid and she asks him to choose the door for her and she, she turns back and she's, you know, she says to him, you are, you are a kind boy. (laughs) You choose the door for me. I loved that whole vignette. I thought it was so lovely. I was very sentimental about it, actually. Oh, God, yeah. And everything about, like, um, her cooking and her being upset Uh that, like, no one was ever going to taste the food. And so he tried it for her. She was so tender, that whole sequence. So, um, you know, I, I too, (laughs) friendlessly (laughs) read a bunch of books about Egyptian mythology. Gail and I didn't meet each other until later in life. We'd probably be, like, way less educated if we had because um maybe we wouldn't have spent so many t- uh years with our heads in books but um yeah I, I correct me if I'm wrong gail that you have like a a fun introduction to the ways in which anubis would weigh weigh the sins of the oh gosh dead. okay so i and this this is a major like sidebar tangent over here but um I got a tweet earlier today uh, from someone who was like, the you know, the first scene in American Gods reminded me so much of one of those Sesame Street specials. And I was like, oh, my God, I remember that Sesame Street special. And it was uh, and I, I tweeted back like um, a, a another fantasy author, Scott Lynch's long rant, long profanity filled rant about this particular Sesame Street special, which in which. The characters from Sesame Street are trapped in a museum overnight, and Big Bird finds the, like, wandering soul of a 4,000-year-old Egyptian prince and then has to, like, help him, you know, pass the the riddle that is posed for him to get his heart weighed against a feather. And it turns out Big Bird actually has to volunteer one of his own feathers. And then the kid's heart is so weighed down by the sadness of being alone for 4,000 years (laughs) that he can't get to heaven. And Big Bird yells at at the Egyptian deity, who in this case is Osiris instead of Anubis for whatever reason. Um, And then like gets the kid admission to heaven uh, and his cat too. 
And it was just really tickled that somebody else had this like weird Sesame Street association with Egyptian mythology knocking around in their head. Because I was seriously, did anyone else see that that special aside from like me, Scott Lynch, and uh, this this one girl on Twitter? <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's, it was so it was so disturbing as a child that I, honestly, every single time I've ever thought of that, like you know, heart lighter than a feather thing, I've thought to myself, that's like impossible. I know because a six year old kid couldn't do it, and I am an adult, and I'm pretty sure my heart's heavier than a feather. <laughs> But anyway, the 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 scene uh, as it was done in the American Gods episode was actually um, it was very hopeful and and sweet because you know she was recounting she was sort of confessing her sins to Anubis like well uh, it's probably too heavy because I did you know a variety of of small bad things um, and then she says but I I did my best and he tells her your best was good that's um everybody- it was. This is lovely. It was so lovely. And my weird association is with um, Chunk from Goonies having his hand held over the blender and like, <laughs> confessing his various rather innocuous sins. So um, that's my way less classy association. But uh, <laughs> that tweet to us about Sesame Street came from uh, Kelly Carnemark on Twitter at Kelly Carnemark. So. Uh, thank you so much for taking us down that uh, memory lane. And if you want to read that Scott Lynch rant, uh, Gil has tweeted out from her Twitter account at Clockwork Rose. So you can check those things out. But this is not the last we'll see of Anubis, God of the Dead. Uh, we have already met his partner. Um in, you know, if you were wondering, like, who's that person writing, writing, constantly writing, writing these coming to America <laughs> vignettes, uh, that's Mr. Ibis, a.k.a. Thoth, Toth, Toth, I think you pronounce it Toth. Uh, so Ibis and Jackal um, are a pair uh, in this particular, <laughs> quite a pair, particular show. Okay, uh, then we, we go to a lovely rooftop scene where, speaking of, like, climbing up the sides of buildings, um, Shadow wakes up and sees a ladder outside of his room, climbs up to the roof to find the youngest Zariah sister, Vecharnaya. Nope, nope, I'm going to get it right. Hold on one second. Pull it, pull it, sh- nope. Pull it, sh- pull Pull it, Oh my god, guys, please forgive me. Um, the young sexy sister, um, the virgin. Shadow couldn't say it either, so. (laughs) I don't, that's a low bar. Um, (laughs) Of of the Zoraia, you know, we sort of talked about the Zoraia sisters last week, the first two that we met. Those are based in sort of Slavic mythology. Neil Gaiman made the sexy younger sister up, the Midnight Star. (laughs) Um, And in the books, correct if I'm wrong, Gail, Shadow does much more than just kiss her on that rooftop, right? He, uh. They have relations, do they not? Do I am I misremembering? I I don't think so. Okay, I misremember. I don't remember that. Okay, I just remember Shadow sleeping with a lot of women in this book, but I, I could be wrong. There's <laughs> definitely one later, but we'll get sleeping to that. with people in general in this book. I don't remember that happening. Okay. But, um, um, anyway. but you know what's most significant that Zoraya does is she plucks the moon out of the sky in a very like visually stunning moment. I thought. Um, and gives it to Shadow in the form of a silver Liberty Head dollar. She says, don't give it away. You've been given protection once. You had the sun itself. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But, you know, once Shadow gets a hold of this 
coin, the, the moon, uh, his luck changes immediately and he is able to then beat Chernabog at a game of checkers and, uh, you know, stay, kind his, of. I mean, like, stay yeah, his he, execution. Yeah. Maybe not quite the amount of luck that the, uh, the yellow sun would have given him, but he does at least, yes, stay the hand of Chernabog and get him to go on the quest with him. And I really thought he was going to die in this episode. I thought it was all over, but no, <laughs> our shadow carries on. Uh, it certainly did appear that way. What did you think? What did you think of the Zariah? I, I, I loved, um, I loved her line. She, okay. First of all, I will say that I I had to stop for a minute and look closely at her because her, she's, she's such a Gaiman-esque character. She reminded me so much of the personified TARDIS in, um, in the episode of Doctor Who in which the uh, TARDIS is, um, consciousness is transported into uh, the body of some broken young girl. Um, but she's just sort of like cheerful and sweet and slightly, uh, you know, socially inept. And she said, <laughs> I really enjoyed what she said about kissing. I think she says, um, kissing is disgusting, but in a nice way, like blue cheese or brandy. And I was like, yeah, good. Okay. <laughs> you get it. Um, uh, I, I, I agree. It was a very visually striking thing that she did plucking the, um, the moon from the sky. Um, performance wise, I was, I was a little bit like, well, you're, you're sort of elfine, um, <laughs> a little trying, uh, you know, just like, oh yeah, that's about all I could take of her. She was fine, yeah, but I, I fine. yeah, I did not want much more. Uh, versus- yeah, I said, she was very lovely. Versus, like, everything Cloris Leachman and Ian Ugh. McShane were doing oh in their scene, which, like, I don't even actually really know what that was accomplishing at all. Uh, except to show, I think, well, I think perhaps what it showed, because it's, an, I would say, an addition from the book, um, is Wednesday, Wednesday's flirtatious charm in a way that's actually kind of endearing versus if we had seen him use it on that, like, underage-looking girl in the motel room. <laughs> like, to yeah. see him work his magic on Cloris Leishman, you're like, this is great! Yeah. She's great! She deserves his attention. Um, he's so charming. She's like, go to bed. He's like, that's what I'm trying to do. Waggle, waggle. You know, like, it's, it's pretty great. And he's brushing her hair, and yeah. she just looks amazing. So Yeah, I may have giggle-laughed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and he he is he's so charming and delightful, um, and she's she's so sour faced, but at the same time she's like go on, yeah, uh, and, she, and also uh, she's wearing the most astonishingly beautiful coat. Oh, Sorry to get yes. like focused on wardrobe details, but that coat was amazing. And then also it, I, one of the things that I liked about that scene actually, because it is a complete fabrication, uh, it's it's outside the book. Um, but it's just a, it's a piece of action, so to speak, that's happening outside of Shadow's perception. Like, he's not there to see it. And so um, for a lot of this first part of the book, what you're seeing is what Shadow's able to see in any of the, in any of the interactions where he's present in any way. You only see what Shadow does and what Shadow sees. So this was kind of a, a nod to the fact that we're a TV show now and you're going to see some things that uh, our man is not aware of. Yeah. And I like not to spoil anything, but that is going to come into play big time next week. Um, And also this is my little like 
humble brag moment to say that uh, I got to speak to Neil Gaiman last week about next week's episode, episode four. And one of the main things that he brought up was the fact that the book is told from Shadow's perspective and they really wanted to broaden those horizons. So we'll see a lot of that in episode four. Um, but yeah, in the book, you don't, you don't see anything for most of it unless uh, Shadow is seeing it. Right. So what? So we we know we know that when Zoraya was talking to Shadow about the luck uh, that he lost and the and the sun he had the sun itself, um, she's talking about the coin that that mm. um, Matt Sweeney gave him, plucked out of the air and gave to him, and that Shadow dropped in Laura's grave um, in episode one, and we find this out because Matt Sweeney's luck has clearly run out. <laughs> and it's serious. Like I liked Pablo Schreiber as Matt Sweeney okay in episode one. I kind of love him in this episode because, like, um, just <laughs> defeated face. Everything, like the, the the bathroom scene where the bottle breaks in his face, and he's like, "What the hell? I'm used to being kind of impervious to harm." The whole scene, the whole hitchhiking scene with everything that's got this Scott Thompson from Kiss in the Hall is playing this like impossibly <laughs> nice man who gets a steel beam like through his face or whatever. Um, like how I was so pleased to see that other people driving behind trucks carrying steel pipes also like who the writers also have this irrational fear because I get out from behind those trucks. I am convinced that a steel, I never saw that in a movie. I swear. Maybe it was in like a final destination, but I think it was in a final destination. I was about to say, I think it's in a final destination and I, and it's also definitely in the movie, the descent. Did you ever see that? The like spelunking horror movie. Oh, I saw it, and you definitely liked it better than I did. <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to like it, but there's... I've forgotten a lot of parts. But so, of it. you're like, I repressed the cave of bats. <laughs> um, no, but there's definitely like, yeah, a, a a pole through the face, through the windshield sort of situation. In that, um, but it's resigned, but Papa's oh resigned face of, of course, this is happening. The yeah. most improbably terrible thing just happened naturally. <laughs> he just doesn't. Like, he just doesn't, he's not, like, really perturbed by it. He's just, like, put out and exasperated. And it's so funny. He tried to guess all the things that could be wrong with this guy. Turned out there was something wrong with the traffic. Um, And then um, he he storms, uh, you know, I'll just get through all of Matt Sweeney's stuff in one one <clears throat> swoop. He storms in on, on Shadow on Wednesday having lunch and demands to know where the coin is because he like clearly did not mean to give that particular coin away. And this is where he says that thing that, that you mentioned, I think, in the first episode where he's like, the trick is I pulled it out of the air. That's it. That's right. the trick. You saw it. Um, and he, you know, Shadow tells him where to stop, find it. Matt Sweeney storms off. He digs up Laura's grave, sees a conveniently coin-shaped hole in the coffin, and da da da, Laura's not there. So we'll get, we'll come back to that. But um, that is, that is the luck of the Irish, the bad luck of the Irish portion of the, <laughs> of the episode. But like, the, you know, um, I, I think. The season of American God so far, thus far, three episodes in, is up and down. And when it really hits, I want to really give it praise. And I would say, like, all of the Mad Sweeney stuff <laughs> in this episode really worked for me. Because I just thought there was a lot of energy and forward momentum to it, you know? Yeah. Um, and great performance from Pablo. Yeah. Denver, so. Really good performance. There's, a, I, there's sort of a sense that um, whatever luck he had previously had, like he was now 
he he'd been like bar. It was on credit. <laughs> now, like, oh yeah, all the bad things. Now he was coming yeah, home. All, all the, the chickens, interest, yeah, built up. <laughs> all the bad chickens coming under roost. Um, yeah. So I mean, and maybe it's worth really quickly going over what seems to be the rule of this coin. Which is not that he can't be killed necessarily. I think my feeling is that it's not that he can't be killed. It's just like very unlikely that he would be killed, right? Like that's, that seemed to be, you know, he was telling the woman um, played by Beth Grant in in the bar that like, uh, you'll find your, you know, your gun will jam or it'll backfire on you. Like something will happen to save me. But if like he tried to slit his own throat or something like that, he'd probably die. Manage it. Um, Yeah. So we don't necessarily know how that applies in the context of the show to the dead, the already dead. But um, I have a feeling we're about to find out. So, mm. da da da. Um, but we should, we should rewind a little first on on Wednesday and Shadow, who uh, needs some capital for their enterprise. And so Wednesday proposes uh, a con job. He calls it a bank a bank robbery, but mm. I would call it more of a con job, really. A um, swindle. A swindle. It involves scoping out the location where we see media spying on them. It yeah. involves going to Kinko's, where they have that fun discussion you mentioned about Jesus. <laughs> uh, it requires snow. And my, you know, I reread this part of the book because I just wanted to remember, like, does Shadow actually make it snow? And yes, he seems to. Um, and why does Wednesday need to snow? And my impression from the book and the show is that it just adds a level of confusion that helps him get away with his con job, basically. Well, and everybody wants to get out of the snow. Right. So they don't want to hang around. Exactly. Like, yeah. So they're more inclined, they're less inclined to investigate what's going on and just be like, okay, fine, here we go. I, uh, yeah. I'm, oh, it's cold. I want some hot cocoa. Uh, we also see him pull off like a really, a really minor grift when he buys Shadow that cocoa. Um, and, <laughs> and yeah, and we find out that Shadow, or at least someone directed by Odin, can control the weather. Um, yeah. And so that's, so it's possible that Shadow is not just the random you know human bystander that we thought he was or we don't know yet we don't know the answer yet but um something happened with the weather and shadow that was Um, another humanizing um part of the episode too actually it was you know when shadow answers the payphone and uh, it's the number that has been printed on Wednesday's business cards. Um, so when the police call in to check his credentials, mm-hmm. they call. They end up calling the payphone, and so Shadow answers it and pretends to be Andy Haddock uh, from whatever securities, and um, and kind of goes the extra mile in his uh, his character and, and says, uh, "Oh yeah, you know, um, we're always looking for uh, for good men, and uh, why don't yeah, why don't you call those guys, my supervisors, and tell them we need more guys on the job, and oh, you know, if you ever need an extra buck, please give me a call. You got my card. That, yeah, it's in the book too, but it was just kind of cool to see Shadow like get into a role, <laughs> stretch himself a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he he takes to it like a duck to water, like absolutely, mm-hmm. like he just seems like this is something that he's good at, something that he enjoys doing, and it is. It's a, a he's a little livelier than we often get to see Shadow or Ricky Whittle be in the show. So mm. you know, like watching Matt <clears throat> Sweeney do all this stuff, it's fun to watch Shadow do that, right? Yeah. Um, and then he and Wednesday have this conversation in the car, where Wednesday talks about um, he says the only thing that scares me is being forgotten. Uh, which feels significant, but also mm. 
shadow you know this is this is a good moment and i we had one in the last week's episode but you know it further addresses the whole like is shadow just too calm about what's going on around him or you know this this whole being able to make things snow be able to make it snow seems to have shaken him in a way that other things haven't necessarily yet to an extent and so they have this conversation about faith and what you can believe in and what matters to you and all sort of stuff. And, and it's a, it's a fun scene that I think gets to the heart of a lot of the themes of American gods and is, is buoyed by the performance of Ian McShane and, mm-hmm. and Ricky Whittle. So, and then, and then of course there is a cameo from a wolf, which is yeah fun and Odin-y. So, yeah. And, and, uh, Mr. Wednesday seems to take a lot of hope and pleasure out of the appearance of said wolf. Uh, we should mention, as we did last week, we mentioned that that Odin has some some animal attendants. <laughs> um, is it Jerry and Frecky? Is that how you pronounce the two wolves that attend on Odin? Well, one of them is definitely Frecky. Okay, um, it's so. I was uh, I was reading my daughter um, Norse mythology uh, tonight as <laughs> her bedtime story. I have a delightful children's version of it. And I was, um, uh, I, I have such a hard time for whatever reason. I have a really difficult time remembering the names of Odin's attendants. And I totally botched the names of the Ravens last week, which is criminal because I actually have a beautiful print on my wall that a friend did for me for my birthday of Odin's Ravens. And they are, uh, Hugin and, uh, Munin. So thought and memory. But uh, the names of the wolves always elude me. I can only remember the name of the horse, which is Sleepnir. Oh, yeah, um, I, didn't, has... I didn't make you pronounce uh, the world tree. Oh, <laughs> I've always called it Yggdrasil. Uh, that, that works for me. That's one of those words where every time you I'm like, not today, Satan. No, no, I'm not you pronouncing don't hear it. <laughs> you don't hear it spoken out loud that often, so like... Like, as far as I'm concerned, whatever pronunciation you want to use is probably wrong. And, uh, and until an ancient Norse, Norseman comes and corrects me, I will defend my pronunciation of Yggdrasil. All right. So we see, um, you know, when, when Shadow, when all is said and done, Shadow comes back to his hotel room and Laura is there looking in the prime in fact, mm-hmm. looking very rosy. And she says, hi, puppy. And it does not seem like it is a dream this time. It seems like Laura is actually there. So cliffhanger. Um, and that's all that happens in this episode, right, Gail? Nothing else happens, right? No, other things happen. Uh, <laughs> other things definitely happen. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> the, worth mention. The thing, the thing that everyone wants to talk about this week uh, is the equal opportunity things. Yeah, that happen. the equal uh-huh. opportunity nudity things is we see um, this. This is directly from the books. It's a coming to America vignette um, of this uh, beleaguered businessman named Salim who is stuck selling tchotchkes in New York and he's not happy about it. He's doing it, I believe for his brother-in-law who back in Oman. Um, and he gets sort of, I mean, exactly from the book is what happens in the show where he gets stuck in the lobby of this terrible person's office all day, made to wait, uh, just all the indignities. And then he happens to hop in a cab. It's so funny because like 
cabs are kind of going away. So like, yeah. would this person be an yeah. Uber driver? I don't know. But uh, hops in a cab and meets um, an ifrit or a jinn or a genie, if you prefer. And it's not, it's not quite a genie, but we'll we'll go there. And um, the, we saw the ifrit last week, sort of meeting with with uh, Wednesday in the diner. We saw his flaming eyeballs then, and and we see his flaming eyeballs again. Salim, who is gay, and I would assume has like maybe never allowed himself to be gay um, because of his culture, uh, has this sort of sexual assignation with the jinn that is, I mean, it's not, I, I guess it's gra- it's graphic, but it's not like crass. It's very no. arty and Brian Fuller. It's basically <laughs> X-rated Hannibal. Um, has <laughs> has sex with him, and then in the morning wakes up. The jinn is gone. Um, and he puts on the gin's clothing and he gets behind the wheel of the taxi cab. Now, I want to say a couple things about this. When I was, when I first saw the episodes of American Gods, when I was down in LA, like my memory of this scene was that this was actually kind of a sad thing that happened to Salim. Um, mm-hmm. Because the way the, G, the gin describes his taxi cab, it, it just reminded me, I don't know like where I've read gin stories before, but I definitely have. And it reminded me of gin stories I've read where. The gin, the gin always wants to get out of the bottle. The gin wants to entrap someone else into the bottle so that the gin can get out of the bottle. Like someone has to take that that gin's place in the bottle. Right. And right. so the, I always read this coming to America vignette as this this gin, this ifrit, has trapped Salim uh, into his bottle, which is the taxi cab, basically. And, and, and in the books, it's like sort of much more explicit that that. Salim has kind of been rolled, like all of his stuff is gone. His yeah. his return like airfare or like a plane ticket to Oman is gone. Um and then he gets like a call from the front desk that says, like, you know, Salim has checked out. You, his guest, whoever the fuck you are, not Salim, <laughs> you need to get out too. And all he has left is the freeze clothing and the taxi cab. And then mm. so then he has to go drive the taxi cab. Now that being so it was my interpretation that, that that this was like sort of a tragic tale for Salim. He got duped into going in the genie's bottle basically um and i brought that up to the one of the producers on the show was showing me this clip and i brought this up to her and she's like yeah we made a conscious effort to actually make it a more positive like liberating experience for salim and then when i brought that up when i was talking to david neal on the main storm of spoilers episode about american gods you know one of our listeners was like i always interpreted that book scene as positive and that, so then I was like okay well I should reread it to make sure that I wasn't misinterpreting and at the end Salim just says says like I think light it's either lightheaded or light I think it's lightheaded not lighthearted but lightheaded uh-huh. and um he says I do not grant wishes which is something he says in the show too to sort of like feel the taste of what it sounds like in his mouth and stuff like that uh-huh. um so it's not like wholly negative and I think I was just projecting my own history with sort of gin stories. Um, but I think Brian Fuller, who is a gay man, like wanted to make this sort of expression of sexuality, a positive liberating thing rather than like, um, an, a bait and swish sort of grift. Um, mm-hmm. what, what was a, your interpretation of reading it in the book and b your perception of it in the show? Well, as so as as you guys know, I've been reading the book, rereading the book as um, as the episodes are as as we're watching these episodes. And I actually I found when I reread that scene, I found myself feeling very ambiguous about how um, Salim felt about what had happened to him. 
in a sort of typically game and way, there's no explicit, you know, cue as to how he feels. He, he just sort of puts on the clothes and goes downstairs and gets in the cab and says these words. And so I, I, I always was sort of like, well, you could really take that either way. I, I really loved that they made it such a positive experience, such a liberating experience in the show, because I mean, the, the, the sexual experience of the character, um, I thought, I thought that scene was really beautifully done. I thought it was very, it was very moving. It was very sweet. And I loved, I loved the line when he says, which is also in the book, I, I wish you could see what I see. Um, when I look at you or something to that effect. And, um, you know, he's not, he's, he's looking at something that he finds beautiful. It's something also it's, it's from his home. It's from his childhood and it's something that he's deeply drawn to. And then he's, I mean, he's clearly so deeply unhappy with his life as it stands. And this might not be, this isn't money. This isn't power. This isn't prestige, but it's freedom. And he, he now, he can sort of shuffle off everything that has been expected of him up until this point and, and just do something completely different. So no, it's not that it's not that the gin grants wishes, but there was a door that was open too. And I similarly, I have those associations with gins that they, you know, in, in stories, they are not to be trusted. There are good gins and bad gins. And, um, and, and, and all of that is in the context of what human beings expect out of their lives. And it's very clear in all the mythologies that I've ever read that gins don't have any of those expectations and don't give a crap what people expect from life, but people can be rewarded for good turns or conversely, actually sometimes punished for good turns just because the gin is really pissed at that moment. Um, so very dangerous and not to be tampered with, but I, I just thought it was a, it was a, without actually changing the story in any way, mm-hmm. not even really changing the lines, the way that they portrayed it. It was such a positive and liberating experience for this character. And so few of the characters in the coming to America stories have positive experiences. I thought that was really lovely. And I, I thought it was also sort of, very sweet and poignant to see Salim, this character feeling such sadness and empathy for a suffering deity from his, his old country. The jig was so deeply unhappy and so crushed by this experience. I've been driving this cab for 10 years. You wouldn't believe what I've seen. I'm stuck here. The jig was so stuck and Salim, it, at the end of that that at that vignette, clearly did not feel trapped that the way that the jinn did in that situation. So, yeah, it, it was a very positive um, vignette. And I, yeah, there were there were a lot of things in this episode actually that came out very poignant or very positive. And I, overall, I thought it was a really good episode. 
Um, I do want to point listeners to this great piece of runvulture.com um, by Abraham Reisman, who is, I know for a fact, a huge Neil Gaiman fan and has been doing some great coverage. The headline is, Brian Fuller demanded a reshoot of American God's gay sex scene because it wasn't gay enough. And I'm just going to read you this lead on the article, which goes <laughs> like this. When American God showrunner Brian Fuller first saw a cut of the epic gay sex scene in Sunday's episode, he didn't mince words. I was like, okay, unless he has a 12-inch candy cane cock and can fuck around corners, his dick's not getting it in Fuller recalled. So you guys need to go back and figure out where holes are. So, <laughs> so basically, the, the initial version uh, did not pay due homage to anatomy. Um, so Brian Fuller <laughs> demanded a reshoot that made more sense. Um, and this is an extensive piece that where, you know, he, t- uh, a- a- Abraham talked to the actors and the directors and stuff like that. So it's, it's worth a read over on vulture.com. But um, the, <laughs> the other thing I want to say is a, a question a lot of people have, have asked me um in in the books, it's I think it's an act. I be, well, I don't know if it's just an act, but it's definitely at least an act of oral sex because um, Salim discuss, uh, talks about tasting the fire um, in the gin's sort of semen, and in the show you see it sort of go the the fiery ejaculate go into him. Um, not to mince words, but. Um, and so a lot of people are like, well, is Salim a gin now? And I would say no, because his um, eyeballs are not on fire. So I would say Agreed. he's not. Um, but, um, uh, you know, anyway, that, that's my answer to that question. So, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> that's episode 30, man. So we've had a lady, you know, swallow worshippers with her vagina. I think Brian Fuller tweeted out yesterday. He was like, my mom... Uh, said to me today, she hopes me making a show about a lady eating people with her vagina doesn't turn people off my work. Happy Mother's Day! Um, so we've seen that, and we've seen this gay sex scene, and so, um, you know, that gives me hope. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna, I don't think we're gonna do, we're not gonna do a major spoiler section this week, I think, because we're running a little low on time, but, um, I don't want to say it gives me hope that we will meet Bastet at some point. Yeah. And um, that that will all play out as it does in the book. So, um, <laughs> Gail, is there anything else from this episode that you wanted to address? I don't think so. I think I said all my... Said all my pieces, <laughs> but uh, I did. I did really love this episode. It left me with such a happy feeling. Great. Um, yeah, I think. I think more and more the show's finding its stride. I'm really excited to talk to all of you guys about next week's episode, which was my favorite episode. And spoiler alert: Neil Gaiman says it's his favorite episode too. So, Ooh. episode four, American Gods, next week. We will see you then. Until then, uh, Gail, where can people find you on the internet? I am at Clockwork Rose on Twitter. I'm Joanna Robinson. You can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Until next week, only the gods are real. 